Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. So, as always... Do we have a lot to talk about? <laughs> we have a lot to Guys, talk about. Guys, do we have about. a big show coming up? <laughs> yeah. We're going to talk about a couple of uh, confidence votes mm. in European governments. Of course, the one in the UK got widespread coverage yesterday. And frankly, it was bad news for Boris Johnson. Yeah. So we have a guest um, who we're going to talk about that with. Um, it was interesting. And I think the conclusion of of at least all the pundits that I saw was that Johnson's days are numbered. He's not going to be prime minister for too much. Long. Except, uh, you know, as our guest was asking yesterday, who, who is there? Who, who's the next who one? Who is there? Yeah. yeah. If it is Liz Truss, we're in I trouble. Mean, we'll, we'll get a chuckle out of that at least. Yeah. We are going to talk about the elections happening in California and the serious new charges facing some of the participants in the January 6th riot or insurrection. You know, this is the divide. It is. This is the great divide. divide. Was it a riot or was it an attempted coup? Right. Who knows? You know, I think for some of of the people who participated, I think for some it was an attempted coup. Yeah. Yeah. I think that they believe that uh, that's what Donald Trump wanted them to do. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, We're going to talk about what to expect from talks between Russia and Turkey this week, beginning uh, today, tomorrow. We'll talk more about how broken the entire U.S. immigration system is. Even when you do everything according exactly to the, the book. Exactly the way you're supposed Even to. Even when you do everything you're supposed to do, yeah. you still, yeah, you still language. You, you told me a story offline that's just, it's just appalling, and it's going to come up in, in our talk with our guest. So there really is a lot coming up. And I want to begin with a headline uh, that, that first appeared in the Sunday New York Times. It's begun spreading to other outlets today. It's very exciting news from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. Oncologists and researchers there developed a new drug to fight colorectal cancer, and they used it on a very small sample of 18 people. Now, all 18 people had stage three and stage four cancer Mm -hmm. that began as colorectal cancer. After four months, all 18 of them were cancer-free. It's crazy. That's incredible, yeah. The New York Times said, and this was such a wonderful quote, this is the first time in the history of cancer that this has happened. That's wild. Of course, 18 people is a very small sample size, but the results give doctors hope that cancer patients can forego or will at some point in the near future, be able to forego traditional therapies like chemo and surgery and still be cured of cancer. Incredible. So anyway, I thought that was very interesting. And there's a story uh, that's unfolding that I think is amusing to both of us. Oh, this is just, (laughs) yeah, I have a a lot of thoughts. Well, the Washington Post has a, a political reporter by the name of Dave Weigel. And Dave Weigel was suspended yesterday for one month without pay for retweeting a sexist joke. He had retweeted this joke a week ago and almost immediately deleted the tweet and apologized. But trouble for him began when one of his Washington Post colleagues, Felicia Sanmez, uh, who recently had a sex discrimination suit against the Post dismissed by a federal judge, she tweeted sarcastically, It's fantastic to work at a news outlet where things like this are allowed. Then she tagged Weigel 
and said, sorry, but what is this? It sends a confusing message about what the post's values are. So, of course, the post was compelled to jump in. Yeah. They, they said that that Weigel's tr- uh, tweet was reprehensible, mm-hmm. and they suspended him for one month without pay. Reprehensible is making it's me laugh. It's a strong word. Re- there, a lot of things in this life are reprehensible. Sure. A tweet that says, yeah. every girl is bi, you just have to figure out if it's polar or sexual, yeah. Is a dumb, it's a dumb joke, right? It's, it's a, a dumb, dumb joke. joke. Reprehensible is is really comically mismatched to the yeah. level of offense. It is a dumb joke, right? It is. It's, it's a, a dumb, dumb joke. joke. Uh, I am, uh, you know, aware of Dave Weigel and his reporting and my opinion of him is lower after this right. retweet. Uh, do I think it should, you know, wipe out an entire history of good reporting <laughs> and good behavior or whatever? No, right? It was a dumb joke. I don't defend, you know, it's stupid. And then he deleted it. And you will see uh, you will see in the online hysteria about the whole unfolding event, uh, people alluding to Weigel's uh, misogyny. I don't I have not encountered Dave Weigel being misogynist, but I also don't claim to have a sort of comprehensive understanding of his work. So who knows? Yeah, maybe he's just a pig and goes around being a pig all the time. This is not enough to convince me of that. But here is the other thing. Felicia Sanmez. Uh, in 2020, right. was actually suspended by the Post over a tweet. She was suspended with pay for two days, uh, and uh, and a bunch of her colleagues, including Dave Weigel, uh, but lots lots of other uh, journalists, um, spoke out in her defense. She was the reporter who tweeted shortly after Kobe Bryant died. Just tweeted a link to a story about the rape allegations against him. The really distasteful um, non-trial that happened and the settlement that occurred afterward. And there was huge uproar because how dare you remind the world uh, that Kobe Bryant was, you know, perhaps a very flawed human being Mm -hmm. uh, at the time of his death. And, you know, yeah, I think you can say uh, his daughter also died in that plane crash. Like, was that the time that that needed to happen? But again, she didn't comment on it. She just tweeted it. And it was true. And like journalists are not compelled to remember only the best moments of someone's life. Right. So the Post freaked out. And I think this is because the Post didn't Post just doesn't want to be it doesn't want to be going against the grain, right? Mm-hmm. As, as we yeah. try and do here, they really don't. They're like, everybody's, right. everybody's sad about Kobe Bryant. We just don't want, we don't want to be doing anything that everybody in the country isn't already doing. So they, uh, they rush to suspend Felicia Sanmez, supposedly not for that tweet, but for a tweet in which she shared the response that she got. She had a picture of her inbox that showed a bunch of abusive emails directed at her and that showed the the sender's full names. And the post was like, that's the that's the real problem, which, you know, of course, is is total yeah. garbage. Yeah, um, it is. But so, yeah, so Sanmez is suspended for a, a matter of days is reinstated. I mean, honestly, I think it was two days suspended on the 26th, reinstated by the 28th again with pay. Um, so yeah, the, the post just cannot figure out what its social media policy is supposed to be. The post reporters are supposed to be upholding the post's values when they tweet about their personal lives. And, you know, another r- reporter, um, Taylor Lawrence, who does this sort of social media and internet right. culture beat for them. Right. Uh, has talked quite a lot about how she wanted to work at the Washington Post because its internet, uh, its social media policies and internet policies were, you know, ad- advanced and better than her previous employers and whatever. But Taylor Lawrence is also sort of 
constantly like yeah. tweeting things and deleting them constantly. and making accusations and what you know. So she, she gets sure. into Twitter wars with people and yeah, constantly fighting. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I have some sympathy I have sympathy for Felicia Summers. I mean, I think it was I think it was ridiculous that they went to suspend her after that tweet. Yeah. Or whatever you think of the the timing of it. Agreed. And then she has said in her lawsuit that the post uh would not let her didn't assign her stories about sexual abuse or sexual violence because she had publicly said that she's herself a survivor of such things. And the judge, I guess, just said, we can't find we can't find that that is uh, something that's happening. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not going to try to say anything about the merits of that case because I have no idea. I just know this is the timeline of it. The other thing, though, is um, this is being pointed out uh, by people who are defending Dave Weigel. Uh, they worked together. They shared a byline together as recently as last year. Ooh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So, you know, maybe maybe you think that Dave Weigel is a misogynistic pig and, you know, you don't want to waste any time talking about talking to him personally. You just want to confront him and, and shame him in front of the Internet. But if you don't feel that way, then it seems like for an offense of this level, which is to say pretty marginal, Maybe you just say, hey, buddy, that was a dumb joke. Like, that was a dumb joke. You think that looks good? Right. You pull him aside. Yeah. Say, what are you doing, man? Yeah. You say, should this delete is, this. This is stupid, and I'm surprised you feel that way. Yeah. And delete it. And yeah. maybe not. Yeah. Yeah, so, that, that's right. I mean, a, a lot of this is just, a, it, it's sort of a media tempest in a teapot. Mm -hmm. But it does potentially have larger implications because eventually, you know, I mean, Pete, there has been a trend, especially in the last in the last couple of years, of trying to bring people's employee employers in when they do something wrong, right? Trying to get somebody in trouble with their employers if they've done something that you think is wrong. And social media policies are going to like companies are going to have to grapple with this. Yes. What are what are their employees allowed to say online and not allowed to say online? And if they violate these infractions, what should the punishment be? In this case, they really think I think a month without pay is. Yeah, kind it's, of. It's, it's kind of it's excessive. Too much. And then also, if you have a reporter on your staff, again, I don't know, but if you have a reporter on your staff who is consistently expressing misogynist views, yeah, that's different. Then the punishment of a, a month without pay is also not appropriate. Correct. Maybe then that's someone you shouldn't have on your staff. But some like weird inter intermediary thing like this, it's obviously just to sort of try and make up for a fumble, the fumble of, of 2020 with Felicia Sommez herself. It's just. It's just silly. The Washington Post needs to pull itself together. Yeah, I agree. There's also an, an, another interesting story today. I was very pleasantly surprised when I woke up. I went on to, uh, I, I always scan the Israeli press in the morning, and I found this at the Times of Israel. Republican Senator Mitt Romney and Democratic Senator John Ossoff have teamed up for a bipartisan inquiry into the murder of American citizen mm. and Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akla that we have reported was likely by Israeli soldiers. Abu Akla was on assignment, as our listeners probably uh, recall. She was on assignment in Jenin, walking through a refugee camp, when, um, and she was with her producer and wearing both a bulletproof vest and a helmet. And you can see the pictures. They say press. press. Hugely, yeah. Press. Yeah. Across she was also both. really well known. She was a household name yeah. in the Middle East, very well known, highly respected. Yeah. Uh, as they walked past this group of Israeli soldiers, one of them reportedly shot her in the face and killed her. And then when her producer began to run away, they shot him in the back. 
and he survived. So um, Israeli police, a couple of days later, we've all seen the video, attacked pallbearers at her wedding. They actually went inside the church at one point, and with truncheons, they were beating the pallbearers. They almost dropped the coffin. Uh, it, it was just a horrible situation. So the Israeli government initially said that they would conduct what they described as an intensive investigation into the incident. But just two days later then, they announced that Abu Akla had been targeted by Palestinians and that there would be no investigation. What? Yeah. So they're sticking with the line that Palestinians did it. Yeah, Palestinians did it. Israelis didn't do it. Well, now additional eyewitnesses have come forward. And they support, of course, the producer's story that they were just walking down the street minding their own business. And one of these soldiers raised his rifle and shot her in the face for no reason. So um, now I I should add an an independent medical examiner uh, did an autopsy and reviewed the same uh, data that the Israelis had access to and said that the bullet that killed her came from an Israeli military rifle. Mm-hmm. Wasn't the whole story, the, Israel, uh, the Palestinians have the bullet, the Israelis have the gun. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That is that's sort of, pretty much the whole story. That's not a metaphor. Yeah. I don't know. Well, actually. So now it looks like we might have a U.S. investigation. And of course, nothing's going to come of it, except the truth is going to get out. And that might be the whole point. Can I slide in one last headline? Please do. We've got a couple that, minutes. That blew my mind this morning. This is late. We're late on this. This is from April. I don't know how I missed it, uh, but it came up in another story about um, the ever-battling Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. Oh, yes. Which is celebrity gossip. We don't usually uh, get into it too much, but um, what might turn more serious is, it, so Page Six reported this back in April. Uh, that a woman whose identity has been masked as Jane Doe is reportedly suing the FBI for dropping child abuse charges against actor Brad Pitt. And so, you Jane know, people believe, that, huh? yeah, people believe that this woman is Angelina Jolie. Yes. Uh, in this story that is from April, they had not confirmed, Jolie's people had not confirmed that it was her. Who knows if they have since then? I suspect not. Um, but yeah, it, it was, it is about this infamous fight um, on a private aircraft during which she alleges that uh, Brad Pitt assaulted, verbally and physically assaulted uh, her and the children. And that was sort of what precipitated their divorce. And yes. so apparently she thinks that the FBI should have taken this whole thing more seriously. And we'll see. I just I just mentioned that because Angelina Jolie suing the FBI is a story that I would be <laughs> very interested in. I would be, too. Yeah. I think it'd be fun. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we are going to take a very short break Mm -hmm. and come back with wonderful guests. We have Ken Surin today. We have Elijah Manier. We have Tina Desiree Berg and Mark Shmueli. We're live in D.C. and we'll be back after this. You're listening to Political Misfits. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Woody. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are going to get into some European politics for a little while this morning. We will talk about Boris Johnson's continued survival. We will talk about the other confidence vote that happened yesterday that you probably didn't hear about. And we will get into, you know, the the pressure that exists for Europe to more seriously remilitarize and what a remilitarized continent of Europe might look like. Joining us for this conversation is Dr. Kenneth Surin. He's a political and foreign affairs analyst. He's also Professor Emeritus of Literature and Professor of Religion and Critical Theory at Duke University. Dr. Surin, thanks for joining us again. Um, You're welcome. Let's talk first about the UK, where Boris Johnson survived a confidence vote that ended up being, I think, closer than some people would have expected. As the rules currently stand, Johnson is protected from another such vote for the next 12 months. And though there are, of course, calls for him to resign, he hasn't yet shown any inclination to do so. And he has also said he is not interested in snap elections. And I wanted to ask you about this analysis from The New York Times that I thought was interesting. It noted that they could have delayed this vote a couple of weeks until after a scheduled by-election and maybe got a different result. And that, you know, this potential bungle reflected what it called the inchoate nature of the rebellion against Johnson, that it's not really there's no attempted coup. It's just sort of an extended grumble. And I guess that we spoke about yesterday or we spoke to yesterday said Johnson is really being helped by the fact that there isn't any natural replacement for him. And so I wonder if you think this is what's going on. If, if Johnson, you know, in the figure of Boris Johnson, you have someone who has always been uncouth and embarrassing, uh, but he's not necessarily out of step with the conservative party. And they're finding it hard to get rid of him for someone who will just maybe be a little bit smoother, which kind of sounds like Donald Trump to me. So I, I wonder what you think is going on here uh, with the Tories and with Johnson. I think, first of all, um, the reason why he called uh, the vote of confidence so quickly um, was to prevent the forces opposing him from uh, getting organized properly. Um, So he wanted the opposition to not have enough time uh, to mount a proper uh, coup, if you like, It wasn't really a coup, as you pointed out. Um, But if he gave them time, uh, who knows what might have transpired, uh, and something more like a coup could have taken place. Now, waiting for the two by-elections on the 23rd uh, would have been fraught with risk. Uh, He's almost certain to lose one of them uh, in a so-called red ball seat. and the other one, uh, he he stands a good chance of losing it to the Liberal Democrats. Um, so uh, the longer he waited, um, meaning waited for the by-elections to be held, mm-hmm. um, it, it was not going to improve his chances, the outcome of the election. Because if he lost one and the other one was extremely close, uh, that would be regarded as him losing two by election. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he didn't want to take that risk. Um, as to what's going on, well, I think there is no clear replacement for him. 
uh, you know, this simply shows uh, how down at heel the Conservative Party is uh, politically and intellectually. Um, Boris Johnson, in order to shore up his position, uh, has made absolutely certain that there are no rivals on the horizon, uh, at least insofar as he can affect such matters. Um, and so the party is filled with mediocrities, <laughs> uh, Brexit diehard uh, ideologues, um, basically are the most powerful faction um, within the party. And he, in order to survive, he's had to cater to them. So there are no rivals in sight. Um, and he's playing that for all it's worth. Actually, he's playing everything for all it's worth, mm. including the uh, the Queen's Jubilee that has just ended. Um, so, uh, you know, who knows what will happen? I think the most likely outcome, and I've been reading the British newspapers this morning, um, and even the Tory, the pro-Tory newspapers say that his position is extremely precarious. Uh, there's a very good chance that he will be gone within a year. But if he's gone and his replacement is another conservative leader, does this impact the British people at all? Well, it does, because I think what he's going to do in order to survive is, as I said, to placate the uh, right-wing ideologues in the Tory party. Mm -hmm. So there'll be uh, attack to the right, um, more Thatcherite policies uh, will be introduced. Um, taxes will be cut for the rich. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. There won't be any help for the NHS, which is on its knees, etc., uh, etc. Et so the British people are going to be affected adversely by any steps that he takes to swing his party even further to the right. Mm-hmm. And that's the only place for him to go. It's the only place for him to go, yes. I also, I had not realized that Sweden's government was also facing a confidence vote this week, and it very narrowly survived by one vote. So the the vote had targeted the justice minister, but Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson said the government would resign as a whole if the justice minister lost the vote. Uh, The vote itself was over accusations that Justice Minister Morgan Johnson or Johansson, sorry, had failed to meaningfully address violent crime in Sweden. But it is also perceived as being very, very linked to Sweden's application for NATO membership and in particular how Sweden is going to address this uh, objection that Turkey has put forward that it uh, supports groups that Turkey considers to be terrorist groups Um, because Johansson was saved by the abstention of Swedish independent lawmaker Amina Kaka. Uh, I realize I've never said this outside. Kakabava. Kakabava is what it looks like. She's of Kurdish descent. She said she had been reassured by the governing Swedish Social Democrats that the party would stand by a deal that it had made with her previously to increase support for the Kurdish YPG and PYD groups in northern Syria, uh, which, of course, Turkey regards as terrorist. Um, and so this, of course, is ostensibly ostensibly why Turkey is threatening to block Sweden's NATO membership. So the whole government, hang, you know, hung in the balance of, uh, of this deal that it had made with a lawmaker on uh, Kurdish issues and Sweden's point for Kurds. So I wonder, Dr. Cern, what you think happens next, right? Sweden has made promises now to this Kurdish lawmaker and to its Kurdish population. Uh, we do know people love to break promises to the Kurds. 
Uh, and so I wonder what kind of message the Swedish government is sending here uh, and what this means for its NATO membership. Well, uh, uh, you're not the only one who failed to realize <laughs> what was going on. I, I include myself mm -hmm. in that camp. Um, I'm not really familiar with Swedish politics, uh, but I think if one is talking in terms of generalities, mm -hmm. I think what we're going to have here is basically uh, a standoff that will be not unwelcome to both Turkey uh, and Sweden, mm. uh, because neither wants, neither country wants this uh, to be pushed to an outcome. Um, huh. so Turkey really doesn't want to uh, be brought uh, to the situation where it has to cast a, a, a veto, mm -hmm. official veto, against Swedish membership. Um, at the same time, uh, the longer this goes on, I think the cooler the Swedish public will be about NATO membership. Mm. Uh, I think the the question of NATO uh, welcoming Finland and Sweden um, to its ranks was really an attempt to said the message to Vladimir Putin um, about the concerted nature of the opposition to his invasion uh, of um, Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, as to whether it was anything more than message sending, um, we don't know yet, mm -hmm. because there doesn't seem to be uh, any steps taken to uh, scheduling an official vote. Um, there don't seem to be uh, serious negotiations about the entry of Finland and Sweden, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I think this was more in the nature of communicating a possible intent to Vladimir Putin than anything else. Mm -hmm. What we will have, I think, is a continued standoff with both sides um, grandstanding somewhat, um, but really not taking any practical steps to pursue what they say they could pursue. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. And so this is a, a convenient fig leaf for both. It will be, it will be interesting to see what the, what the mood of the population is as, as time goes on. Because, yeah, I do think it is very possible that actually these wheels will just sort of slow and slow and slow, and it will turn out to have been, you know, mostly, mostly PR and message sending. Um, Speaking of this sort of uh, unified response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I wanted to ask about what Russia is calling scandalous behavior by Bulgaria, Montenegro and North Macedonia yesterday. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov was supposed to visit Serbia for talks with the Serbian president and other high officials. But the trip had to be canceled after those three countries, who are all NATO members, closed their airspace to his plane. Russia is pretty upset, and they are framing the move as an oppression of Serbia. You have Lavrov saying a sovereign state has been deprived of its right to conduct foreign policies and that the move uh, exemplifies pressure from the West to make other countries conform to its wishes. Um, as he said, from the Western viewpoint, Serbia mustn't have any choice, any freedom in choosing its partners. Russia is also saying this is obviously coordinated by NATO. Serbia's president, for his part, is saying much the same thing, that because NATO can't really inflict any harm on Russia, right, is, is choosing not 
to engage with those consequences. Uh, they are taking their frustration out on Serbia and punishing a small country for the actions of another one. Uh, Serbia, of course, has a very close relationship with Russia. And while it has voted in the UN to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it has also refused to sanction Russia for the action and relies, uh, I think, 100% on Russian energy imports. Uh, and so I wonder what you think of this of this event, which is not we're not getting maybe as much media treatment as you might have expected. Is this unacceptable pressure by the West or are these simply consequences for the choices Russia has made? Um, I think, you know, it's it's neither. Mm -hmm. uh, both sides are going to slim these accusations uh, at each other about putting undue pressure uh, on countries that are basically bystanders to this conflict. Mm -hmm. um, closing airspace, well, of course, you know, uh, that's a pretty dodgy move. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, both sides, I think, are making these uh, moves that diplomatically um, are rather tasteless. Um, and really don't do anything to improve the climate uh, in which negotiations between Russia and the West can be conducted. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the nature of the game for now, uh, causing as much inconvenience without, as you pointed out, getting militarily involved mm -hmm. uh, is the nature of this beast, uh, at least for now. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think both sides are going to play this game. Um, and, of course, there will be diplomatic kerfuffles, uh, howls of outrage, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the nature of the game for the foreseeable future. And I suppose tasteless diplomatic moves are preferable to some alternatives. Um, but it does seem also like at some point that has to stop because, you know, the, I think the way forward that we all like is is diplomatic, right, and is through conversation. So at some point those are going to have to be facilitated. Uh, I don't think, however, Russia and Serbia talking together is going to necessarily bring an end to the conflict in Ukraine. I wanted to also ask about the state of conversation on the war in Europe right now, because I know you, you follow the French and the German press. We are starting to see in the U.S. mainstream media uh, some concern at the lack of medium or long term planning in our response. Right. We're starting to see some questions being asked about, OK, how much how how many more 40 billion dollar payments can we actually afford? Where are these weapons going to go? What is our long term plan? What will we support in terms of peace talks? Uh, I wonder if similar questions are being raised in Europe, if, if we are behind them uh, and what, what the state of the conversation is. Well, uh uh, I think you're absolutely right. There is, I think, increasing consternation uh, among the European publics uh, about what is perceived to be uh, an increasing stalemate uh, where the battle, uh, the, the, the actual battle, the war uh, in Ukraine is concerned. I think in Germany, uh, support for uh, the position taken by Chancellor Schultz, uh, which, of course, is to uh, be firmly committed to every position taken by NATO. Uh, the, the German public is much more neutral uh, and even somewhat skeptical about NATO's policies and intentions overall. Uh, not just uh, with regard to Ukraine. 
Um, I think in Britain, um, the uh, the position is that Boris Johnson uh, is really uh, playing, if you like, uh, a war leader, in quotes, mm-hmm. because Britain is not actually at war, uh, to bolster his position uh, in the face of Partygate. And in France, well, I think the issue has gone off the boil uh, because the general election uh, where uh, Ukraine was something uh, of an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marine Le Pen uh, is rather more uh, pro-Putin than any of the other candidates. Um, and Macron tried to present himself as a statement-like figure uh, along the lines of a junior Angela Merkel. Um, but the election is over. So uh, this specific issue has gone off the boil uh, in France somewhat, I think. Um, And then to the rest, um, well, well, you know, Italy, uh, the Mediterranean periphery uh, of NATO, et cetera, et cetera, there was never really much uh, interest in siding with NATO. where Ukraine was concerned. Mm. So I think overall what we are seeing is a growing tepidity of attitudes towards the Ukraine. Uh, several countries in Europe are facing economic difficulties. Uh, inflation in Europe is a problem uh, just as it is in this country, etc. And I think domestic economic issues are emerging as being of more concern uh, than the Ukraine war. It is interesting because I I was reading this foreign policy magazine has taken a look at NATO uh, ahead of its summit in Madrid at the end of this month and found quite a lot wanting. Uh, It said, look, you know, the invasion of Ukraine sort of seemed on the surface to have given NATO new purpose uh, and is sort of spurred promises of increased defense spending among members. But if you take a closer look, the bloc is in need of an overhaul. Uh, but I did think it was interesting that if the, the author mentions Erdogan. He mentions Viktor Orban in, in Hungary and the strain that they put on a bloc that is supposedly dedicated to defending democracy. But he saved most of his ire for France and Germany, saying Schultz is indecisive and Macron is a grandstander and that they corrode decision making with their foibles and thus place a big question mark over the alliance's credibility and cohesion. And I think on one hand, that is funny to be saying actually France and Germany are the biggest problems of NATO. On the other, if we sort of do away with the fiction that NATO is a, a 30 member alliance of equals and say it's it's not, you know, it's basically the US and a couple of key nations underneath it, then maybe he's right. Uh, and so I wanted to get your thoughts on that, on whether actually France and Germany sort of foot dragging or just toe-tapping and jazz-handsing around are really the problems uh, to to overhauling NATO? Well, you know, NATO, uh, if you look at its weapons dispositions and capability, uh, is really uh, a United States show. Um, it, in terms of military capacity, um, NATO, and, you know, I don't agree with Donald Trump uh, on many things, NATO, uh, the European members of NATO, have really not been pulling their weight. Mm-hmm. And they have not updated their 
um, weapons capacities, etc., etc. I mean, Britain has an aircraft carrier, but the planes that fly on it are provided by the United States. Um, German tanks are really relics for the cold, from the Cold War, etc., etc. And as we have seen in Ukraine, um, modern warfare uh, is, is basically surface-to-air missiles uh, and tank battles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and none of the NATO countries, apart from the United States, really has the tank capability uh, to fight a protracted war uh, involving tanks primarily. Mm-hmm. The lucky thing, of course, is that Russia's military uh, is similarly uh, not up to date. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think NATO caught a break here because if the uh, if Russia had uh, state-of-the-art tank capability, um, I think this war would probably have been over by now. Mm-hmm. I want to ask then about, you know, the, the authors makes the point that we have to stop pretending that European militaries are equal to that of the U.S., of course, the point that you were just making, and that European defense spending plans must materialize, Europe must remilitarize, and in particular, Baltic states need advanced weaponry. And I wonder, you know, one, if you think there's any chance that that begin, you know, that that ball starts rolling after this uh, summit in Madrid and what the consequences would be on, on uh, you know, European societies, on, you know, the, the state of uh, tension. What, what would be the consequences if Europe does decide that actually, you know, many of its members, NATO member states need state of the art militaries as well? I don't think it will go that far. Mm-hmm. Of course, this is crystal ball gazing. Right. Um, for the simple reason that uh, the economic situation in those European countries uh, simply can't bear the burden um, of the cost of a full-scale military expansion. Mm-hmm. I think what will happen is that the United States will say, well, we will bolster your defensive uh, uh, capabilities um, by sending you, um, you know, more batteries of surface-to-air missiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, when it comes to uh, enabling you to wage uh, an all-out war, albeit collectively with other members of NATO, I don't think uh, that further step will be taken. Mm -hmm. Um, There will be grandstanding. Uh, There will be... uh, uh, the, The dog's bark will be worse than its bite. Uh, at this summit, as is the case with nearly every summit. Um, And I think the main intent will be sending some kind of signal to Vladimir Putin as opposed to taking practical steps on the ground to enhance NATO's military capacity. It is sort of a sad prediction for Americans, right? If, if actually it's just a lot of talk, the status quo continues, and it's the U.S. that is forced, in air quotes, to maintain uh, this military that can substitute for, all, you know, the rest of Europe's 
uh, at the expense of the American people, right? And we, we've seen the money sort of flowing directly into the pockets of weapons contractors. Not that that's new in the United States, but the scale of it this year is pretty remarkable. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, it seems like a, sh a big shift in that status would probably be bad for European societies, but the status quo is just going to make things worse for Americans, I, I would predict. I, I wonder what you think of that. Well, I think I agree with you completely. Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, this country is really in a parlous economic situation, especially uh, for those people who are not rich. Um, and it, that money mm -hmm. is really being uh, thrown down the drain, I think. Mm -hmm. Weapons manufacturers are the main beneficiaries. Yeah. Um, the European countries uh, don't have militaries that are trained uh, up to a standard required to um, utilize these weapons systems. Uh, so I think this, you know, this is a, just a terrible uh, situation where uh, the United States is simply uh, doing everything it can in a not coherent way to maintain its global hegemony. Uh, and um, no one is really benefiting from this. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That was political and foreign affairs analyst Dr. Kenneth Surin. Dr. Surin, thanks so much. We always appreciate your time. Okay, thank you. You are listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. We're going to take a quick break and come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov arrived in Ankara today for talks with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and other Turkish officials. The two sides will discuss Ukraine and Syria as the Russian side looks to Turkish support in the war and the Turkish side seeks a Russian nod in its expected military intervention in Syria. Meanwhile, Erdogan addressed Parliament today to talk about inflation, which is now above 75 percent. That's the highest rate in more than 20 years. And the Turkish foreign minister told an Istanbul newspaper that Turkey would consider invading and occupying Greek islands in the Aegean Sea that they believe should have been given to Turkey under the 1920 Treaty of Lausanne. We're joined by Elijah Manier. He is a veteran war journalist who has spent more than 35 years covering Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Libya, Sudan, Yugoslavia, and other conflict zones. Elijah, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're very glad to have you. Thanks for joining us. Let's begin with what the two sides hope to accomplish in the coming day or two. This is the Russians and the Turks. The Russians are clearly seeking Turkish support for their position in Ukraine, the media are also reporting that Turkey would be instrumental in the sale around the world of Russian grain. What do you think the Turks would be willing to do to help Russia? And in a minute, I'm going to ask you about a quid pro quo. Well, Turkey is eager to play a mediating role in the hope to shortening the war in Ukraine with Russia. And Turkey believes that this can threaten its vital strategic and economic interests. So if Russia succeeds in 
uh, seizing the southern of Ukraine coastline. We've seen that the Azov Sea has been taken away and there is a, a full Russian control on the Black Sea. So that becomes a, a problem for the uh, Turks to see the Russian in control of the whole Black Sea. And it is something that historical between uh, Turkey and Russia. And for and many, Turkey seemed like an illogical choice of mediator because it is a NATO member. However, it is not influenced by the United States or Europe. And Russia has declared NATO as an enemy, but is both countries, Russia and Ukraine, considered Turkey as a good choice to help their talk in that country, even if Turkey has delivered the uh, Bayraktar uh, drone, armed drone uh, to Ukraine and have been contributing in evacuating a Ukrainian from combat zone, like more or less 16,000 to 60,000. So Turkey is playing a role that is limited to facilitation between the two sides. And Russia is exploring all the avenues. If Turkey can succeed, in which I doubt, because at the end of the day, we've seen that Ukraine doesn't have the will to decide to go to the negotiation or not, because at the beginning, uh, President Zelensky sent a delegation, then he withdrew and he said, I want to liberate the whole of Ukraine. And now he's saying that 20% of the country is uh, taken by the Russians. So at the end of the day, the decision is not up to Turkey, it's up to the United States of America. Ah, yes, and you've anticipated then my next question. The Turks need both Russian and American support for their plans to create this 30-kilometer deep buffer zone in northern Syria. The Russians, of course, are allies of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, and the Americans have worked closely with the Syrian Kurds, whom the Turks consider to be allies of the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party. This is a, this is a tall order. Uh, the Russians certainly have more of an incentive to uh, to offer up support for a Turkish uh, plan, even if that includes an incursion. The Americans don't, though. So do you think that that an agreement, a three way agreement that would make everybody happy would be possible? And if so, what what would the Americans get out of this? I think it is not possible for many reasons. Of course. Turkey has a good relationship with Russia, but not in Syria, and has an excellent relationship with Iran, but they also disagree in Syria. And the, Turkey and the United States disagree on the objectives. First of all, because the Americans don't have objectives, but to keep the situation as it is, the, the Americans have supported the PKK Syrian branch, the Kurds that are protecting the occupation, the U.S. occupation and European occupation forces in northeast Syria, and they don't have a plan to give up on the Kurds and give 30 kilometers of the Syrian land to Turkey and watch Turkey becoming stronger. Now, in that area that President uh, Erdogan is claiming to um, have, wanting to have control of, there are the Russians that are increasing their position, the Syrians that are there, the Americans are operating there. It's very weird. Everybody is in that zone. And uh, there is a kind of an agreement not to uh, clash, but also 
is not going to give Turkey any way to divert the attention from his internal political situation and his dear financial situation to move it to uh, uh, another war that he wants to start in Syria that nobody is ready for. I think you're right. I think that this is going to be an intractable situation uh, between the United States and, and Turkey. A very, very difficult one. If the Turks do indeed move militarily into northern Syria in the coming weeks, do you expect that they would remain there? Would they treat northern Syria the way they treated northern Iraq and attack Turkish, I'm sorry, attack Kurdish sites whenever they felt the need? When I was at the CIA working on Iraq back in the 1990s, it became practically a weekly thing where the Turkish military would attack what they claimed to be PKK uh, camps, and uh, they would move in, they would drop bombs, they would go home. Uh, should we expect to see the same kind of thing in Syria? This is an excellent question. Well, I really agree with you. Whenever Turkey, particularly under President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's ruling, when they go to an area, they don't leave. We have seen what they have done in the uh, province of uh, Efrain in the northwest Syria. In Idlib now, they are in control. They wanted to take Aleppo, uh, and they didn't manage, but they keep holding Idlib, and they won't let go of it. They've changed the currency, the teaching, university, uh, schools, hospitals, everything, uh, the number plate, the uh, car's number plate, uh, the, everything is uh, like another Turkish province. And then we heard the uh, uh, Erdogan's party leaders saying that uh, they consider Mosul and uh, Kirkuk the 73 province of Turkey, so they want also to annex part of Iraq. So no, whenever the Turkey is, uh, soldiers go, they don't leave, and they have threatened the Iraqi indirectly by cutting down the flow of the oil freight into Iraq and uh, displacing more than a million and a half of Iraqis, uh, and because the Iraqis are asking the, the Turkey to leave the country. So, no, they're staying, they occupy uh, several uh, parts in Kurdistan area, and they occupy part of Syria, and wherever they take one inch, they don't leave. I think that's right. They don't leave. Uh, that's that's really the big problem. At the same time, uh, Elijah, the Turks are facing the kinds of economic pressures that they haven't seen in decades. Uh, just this week, the, the New York Times reported that the Turkish government is struggling with inflation running about 75 percent. That's as high as it's been in in 20 years. Uh, we, we know back in the 1980s, it was over 120 percent. What political impact do you think high inflation would have on Erdogan? And what effect do you think it might have on Erdogan's military decision making? Now, there are two parts. There is the financial part and the political part. We've seen that the Turkish Central Bank is selling uh, foreign currency. The Turkish uh, bank sold uh, between two to three billion uh, U.S. dollars to put it in the market and stop uh, the uh, deterioration of the currency. It's related to the serious increase of prices. And the inflation, as you rightly said, has reached 70 to 75 percent. That is the highest since 1998. And if we compare it to March only, in March it was 61 percent. 
So Erdogan promised to boost production, export, increase employment, etc., and also not to increase the interest rate, but he's not managing because the citizens have lost faith in the local currency and they prefer to keep the foreign currency instead to protect a little bit their saving. Now, it is not related to the war in Ukraine only because this has been going on since last year. It is also related to the Erdogan's choice in politics and in economy. So when we see the food price and we see the electricity, I mean, even the, um, the, uh, uh, the head of the opposition Republican Party, the, G the, the CHP, said, I'm not going to pay my electricity bill because it's too high. So all that is a provocation to uh, Erdogan's policy. But then let us look at what his political policy has been since he is in power in 2002. He created a conflict with the oil rich in the Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, and Bahrain. Uh, he created a conflict by interfering in Tripoli, by occupying part of Syria, by occupying part of Iraq, by uh, waving the card of the refugees against the Europeans. Um, he created a conflict with the Americans by saying, I'm taking the Russian S-400. Uh, so all his controversial policies have created a serious problem for Turkey where we see inconsistency in a strategic decision if it is on econ economy or on politics. So on both sides, I think next year election will be crucial for Erdogan because the country, the people are, people is reacting and uh, the population is saying this policy is taking us to the bankruptcy and uh, people are scared because there are more and more uh, poor people in Turkey and the value of the lo local currency is almost nothing today. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We've seen Turkish officials at very high levels over the last uh, two weeks or so, as well as Turkish journalists. Uh, threatening Greek sovereignty in the Aegean. This is something new. At least it is for me, and I follow these issues. Is this simply posturing, do you think, as, as we see every few years? Or is this something the Greeks should be worried about? Well, this tension is, exists uh, since uh, Turkey occupied part of Cyprus, and then recently, between 2019-2020, when... Uh, uh, Turkey sent a research ship to the water contested with Greece. Uh, so, as I said earlier, the intervention of uh, Turkey in Libya and Tripoli and uh, uh, the presence of Turkey a bit everywhere uh, is a source of concern to many countries, including Europe and, uh, of course, Athens. So the only solution between two countries is to keep the talk ongoing between Greece and Turkey and to refrain from provoking one or the other, including regarding Cyprus. So no military agreement, no military um, solution is possible. And because there is a war in Ukraine and the consequences of the sanctions imposed by the EU and the US, is taking the EU toward a clear bankruptcy by draining 
their resources impoverishing the EU for their uh, unhealthy and unwise decision to boycott a partner like Russia and to um, boycott the um, uh, purchasing of gas and looking for something that costs 40% buying the liquid gas from uh, America on, or other country where they're not equipped to and they need to spend a trillion uh, dollars to equip themselves. So all these decisions uh, makes Europe incompatible to start with a new war. And as Athens is part of Europe, I don't think there is any appetite to start a clash with Turkey that is also a NATO country. That's right. We only have about a minute left, so I'll keep this very short. You mentioned a few minutes ago uh, Bahrain and Qatar and uh, uh, Saudi Arabia. Turkey has had difficult relations with the Gulf countries over the last uh, several years. Do you see that improving in the near term? It is very, uh, the, the countries, uh, the Gulf countries are very cautious in dealing with Turkey because Turkey has created the base in Qatar with the agreement of Qatar. And the uh, ideology that is represented by the Muslim Brotherhood bother the Saudis and the Emiratis. And this is what Erdogan is advertising for. He wanted to uh, grab yes. the opportunity to take the control of the Muslim world from the Saudis. The Saudis didn't like it. We're going to have to leave it there. I apologize that I have to cut you uh, short. Always happy to have Elijah Manier on with us. He is a veteran war journalist who has spent more than 35 years covering some of the hottest of the world's hotspots. Stay tuned to Political Misfits. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Today's a big day in California politics. It's primary day, and we're watching several congressional races, as well as the all-important Los Angeles mayoral race. But even more important than that, Congress is getting ready for nationally televised hearings of the January 6th committee, beginning on Thursday. In advance of those hearings, we're already seeing new indictments of members of the Proud Boys and other far-right groups. And if media reports are to be believed, many Americans are going to be shocked by revelations of what some senior officials of the Trump administration did on January 6th. We're joined by Tina Desiree Berg. She's host of the podcast District 34, and she's a reporter for Status Coup. Tina, welcome back. Hey, John, how are you? Oh, I've been so looking forward to this conversation. I'm so glad to to have you back on the show. Um, hey, let's start with the January 6th committee. Uh, we're going to see televised hearings beginning on Thursday. Televised hearings are a relatively rare event. They're usually reserved for impeachments or matters of national import like Watergate or Iran-Contra. Strategic leaks to the media tell us that we're going to be shocked by what we here. We're going to be shocked by the involvement of what many of us believe amounted to a coup attempt by senior Trump administration officials. What do you think we could be in for? What should we expect? Well, I think it's going to be a lot of interesting things. Um, so interestingly enough, House Committee hearings can be viewed on live streams on the House website. If you're yes, a- if you can watch all of them. <laughs> yes, that's true. Unique here. 
What I think is unique here is every network except for Fox is now going to be live streaming. Wow. Hearing. So it's obviously going to be, have a much broader audience, but I think the noticeable thing here is Fox is the one that's not going to do it. So you tell me, John. Wow. I did not know that. That's important. That's important. And, you know, one of the things that's been fascinating to me, too, is from the very beginning when this committee was first named, uh, the Republicans refused to play ball except for um, uh, Adam Kinzinger and uh, Liz Cheney. And so, you know, it's technically bipartisan, but both of those Republicans are outcasts in their own party. And I think Kinzinger's not running for reelection. Oh, yeah, he's out. Yeah. 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 That's right. And, and they had Cheney. They Denver Riggleman, but that's he's right. not a member of Congress. <laughs> and, and Cheney is, is likely to lose her primary. So, you know, there are so many different messages being, being conveyed just in the, in the construct of this committee. Yeah. I, I'm excited to hear some of the details. A friend of mine is friendly with Jamie Raskin, who is uh, uh, one of the senior Democrats on the committee. And uh, Raskin has said that this is going to be explosive. It's going to be a major um, event in politics. Oh, I think it's definitely going to be a major event. One thing, you know, to keep in mind, I think, going into this, too, is that the security camera footage inside the Capitol, most of that footage has not been seen by the public yet. Ooh, right. So it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, right? So there are currently, I know for a fact, there are open FBI investigations into several Proud Boys and other Capitol insurrectionists based on that footage alone, because we haven't seen that footage. We've seen the outside footage, right, lots of that. But there are members of, of the Proud Boys, for example, that were not viewable on, on released public footage of the day, but are viewable on security cameras from the inside. So I think they have been slowly building a case up for conspiracy for seditious acts against oh. members. Yeah, I think it's all very much intertwined and interrelated. And I think what's going to be really explosive is that you're going to see relationships being made between sitting uh, public officials members of the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, and members of Trump's inside circle. Oh, my God. That would be, that would be huge. I, I saw Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein on CNN over the weekend. Of course, they're the two famed Washington Post reporters who, who uh, gave us you know, the, the Watergate uh, story in the 1970s. Uh, they said that, and I should add that this is the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in. That's why they've come out with a new uh, forward to their famous book, All the President's Men, and they're being interviewed. And they said that that they had told each other in 1974 that they couldn't imagine a more corrupt president than Richard Nixon, that the that the system had so changed because of Watergate that the system would not allow someone who was as corrupt as Richard Nixon to ever advance to the White House again. And then Donald Trump came along. They said that Trump's actions, if they had taken place in the 1970s, would have landed him in prison, that he was worse than Nixon. Um, he would have been surrounded, they said, by virtually the entire White House staff. You remember during, well, maybe you don't remember, but you've read that during Watergate, you know, it was two dozen people went to prison or jail. The sentences were almost universally short, very short, two months, four months, 10 months. Um, we don't have those short sentences anymore. But, uh, you know, I, I would be surprised if something like that were to happen 
today because we don't have the kind of unity among the public that we had in the 1970s when confronted with evidence of of a crime. Democrats and Republicans alike said, well, they've got to be punished. If you've committed a crime, you have to be punished. That's not what we're hearing people say today. Exactly. It's so it's so partisan. Yeah, please. What do you think? I agree with you. I think it's much too partisan now to see what happened um, during Watergate to happen today. You have a much more radicalized, polarized party system than what we used to have. So both teams are basically saying, well, if my guy did that, we're going to find a way to excuse him. If the other guy did the same thing, no, he's going to jail, right? You can't have justice that way. Justice must be applied equally, right, to everybody. And, And right now we're just radicalized. So I don't think we're going to see a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of punishment handed out to these guys just because the environment we're in now is very much different than what what it used to be. It's a different era. And I think it's uh, very telling that back during the Nixon administration, you had members of the Republican Party that were not okay with Nixon's actions because they found that the democratic system, little d, democracy, not not the party, uh, was much more important you know, preserving democracy was much more important than having party lines uh, Mm -hmm. established and protected. So, but that's different now. Now you see the GOP lining up behind Trump. You see members of, city members of Congress participating in seditious acts along with these radicalized followers. So the era is very much different now. And I also think a lot of this behavior has been entirely normalized across the board. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just, you know, it's just different. So I'm not... I'm not seeing a lot of jail sentences being handed out to these individuals. Maybe I'm wrong there, but I just don't see it, even though many of these acts are worse. No, I I totally agree with you. I think we're going to see two different things here. I think that that the the likes of Enrique Tarrio at the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the whatever they're called, the 95 percenters or whatever, I think that <laughs> a lot of them, whatever they call themselves, I can't remember, I think they're going to go to prison. I really believe that. But in terms of, of them, well, yes, I think I would think we are going to definitely see con- conspiracy charges on a broader scale brought against more members of the Proud Boys. Yeah. The evidence is absolutely there. Listen, I've been in some of these private chat rooms or not anymore because they really tightened up their ship. Mm. Originally, these guys weren't as uh, had the high OPSEC going on. Right. So you could. Get- right. Yeah. That really struck me, actually. Yeah, that's, like that's, these guys just talk and talk and talk like nobody's listening. Yeah. And in fact, the FBI is listening very carefully. Exactly. I, I'm convinced at this point, John, that half of those rooms were either journalists or FBI agents. Oh, my God. Yes. You know, the old stories they've even made um, law and order episodes out of this where you've got, you know, six guys at a at an anti-war uh, uh, meeting planning fire bombings and stuff. And all six of them are undercover FBI agents and they're all reporting on each other. Exactly. <laughs> Love it. So I want to ask you uh, um, about. um about these Proud Boys, some of these recent charges, and I say recent, like in the last week or so, uh, include very serious felonies, like multiple counts of conspiracy to commit sedition. Sedition's actually defined in the Constitution. Uh, It's the act of inciting revolt or violence against a lawful authority with the goal of destroying or overthrowing it. That's what the Constitution says. And the charges against the Proud Boys call for prison terms of up to 20 years Per charge, politically, do you think the country is ready for charges like this? I'm not talking about White House staff. I'm not talking about 
congressmen who've been accused of giving, you know, suspicious tours the day before. I'm talking about these these proud boys at all. Do you think okay. the nobodies are, are going to be punished for this? I think the nobodies are going to be punished for it. And I think the unfortunate reality here is even though they are probably puppets of those that are higher up in power and more powerful, the more powerful people have ways to protect themselves. And I do think the public will accept charges against the Proud Boys. Uh, you know, like Jeremy Bertino has been getting a lot of uh, airplay this week, and he wasn't even there on January 6th. Right. Um, but he was part of the leadership team. And I think it needs to be mentioned the reason he wasn't there January 6th is because he had been involved in some uh, brawls and fighting mm-hmm. uh, a month earlier, and he had been stabbed. So Right. And there was kind of the, uh, you know, the idea that maybe uh, they, they brought in their boy to protect him, to right. not go and take part in that. But right. it doesn't seem that way now. No. Same thing with Enrique Tario. Yeah, I don't think that's the case with Enrique either. Uh, you know, both Enrique, Jeremy, Spaz, all these guys are very much committed to the cause that they were embroiled in. And I think a lot of them still are. Mm-hmm. They believe in their mind what they're fighting for is the Constitution. What they're fighting for is democracy. It doesn't matter whether that's true or not, right? We can look on the outside in and say, whoa, man, that's... That's just a distorted view of reality based on, you know, whatever your radicalized biases are. But but for them, these are these are morals that they believe to be sound and true and worth fighting for. Right. So these these guys are very committed to their cause. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting. Jeremy and Enrique. Yes. Both of them were not there November 6th, but they were both in um, multiple planning room. Private yes. Room, where they were discussing exactly what they were going to do and how they were going to do it. I also want to remind people you know, and I had done a report of this the first week out from January 6th. Uh, John Farina, who uh, was working for Status Quo that day, was, you know, in that tunnel filming the assault on, uh, officer, on the officer, Michael Fanone. So went through all that footage, and I noticed right off the bat that they were all using orange tape to mark themselves, whether it was an ar- uh, around their arm as an armband, whether it was on their helmet or they were wearing orange beanies, but there was some significance to that. And then you could go back and look at Eddie Block's footage, who is mm-hmm. the Proud Boys, and he had been live streaming from the park where they had met at before they went forward into the Capitol. And you could see them with rolls of this tape, like all of them. So, you know, there was, so it's not just um, the obvious emails, exchanges that right. are going to be uh, shown for the first time that the FBI has, but it's also outside things like this. They're obviously using some sort of formal structure about how they're going about doing these things. And one of the fascinating things about this, at least to me, is what we're not talking about here is Joe Blow from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, who went into the Capitol building and you know, tore up Nancy Pelosi stationery. Yeah. That's yeah. not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who were involved in planning. We're talking about people who were hoarding weapons. We're talking about people who were in contact with the White House. I think that's what's going to make this so interesting. I agree. I agree. So, you know, there are two types of folks that were present in the Capitol that day. You have the Joe Blow types that you're talking about. These are guys that are just angry. They want their guy to win. You know, doing their thing. Right. And then you have this other sect, these guys like Enrique, uh, the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, that were very much looking forward into this and planning it in advance and knowing exactly what they were going to do. I think the end game was simply to subvert Biden becoming the president, right? Yes. Allowing Trump to stay 
stay in office. I mean, you, they didn't have to stage a military coup in order for that to be the case, right? If you are able to subvert the lawful function of government with trickery or deceit, that is just as much sedition as staging a military coup. And I think that was the goal. And that included getting Pence out of the picture, right? Right. Because Pence was also part of maybe part, uh, you know, part of a problem as far as allowing Trump to stay in office. So as crazy as this might sound to folks, this is really what they were thinking. Right. I think you're exactly right. I've got to ask you a question about uh, Enrique Tarrio. Uh, the show that I did previously on on um, Sputnik was with Lee Stranahan and uh, he and Enrique Tarrio are, are friendly. And so he came on the show several times. He is utterly unapologetic, and he was facing a ton of charges when he came onto our show and just spoke freely, utterly unapologetic. He's been in and out of jail for the last couple of years because he, you know, tore down a Black Lives Lives Matter flag and set it on fire. He's been banned from the District of Columbia by the D.C. government. He didn't go to Capitol Hill on January 6th. Instead, he was in a hotel in Arlington um, on on a walkie talkie giving orders to people who were on Capitol Hill. And he had a room full of weapons. So that's where he's gotten this conspiracy to commit sedition charge or set of charges. My question to you, though, is this. He has admitted over the last year and the FBI has confirmed that for years now, he's been an FBI rat. He's been an informant for the FBI reporting on other Proud Boys. And he doesn't seem to have reaped any of the benefits that a rat might expect to to reap. He's looking at decades in prison. The FBI's walked away from him. I know you're not a prosecutor. I know you're not a DOJ insider, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this. How how is this happening? Why is he not being protected? Because I actually I'm not convinced that he is actually a rat. I'm convinced obviously he was an FBI informant in some drug cases even back in Florida. Okay. Um, I think he did share information with the FBI, brought in for questioning, interviewing, whatever. But I also don't think he went full rat mode. I think there's uh. in here. I'm just not entirely sure what that looks like. You do have, but let me say this: you do have two factions of the Proud Boys. Many of them are standing behind Enrique, standing behind Enrique, and, and still being lo- loyal to him. Others are not. The ones that are are not being loyal to him are much more radicalized, right? So we're oh. like a Kyle Chapman, right? Chapman now runs a uh, he's a full-on neo-Nazi. He runs a Telegram channel called Proud Boys. Um, oh my! Who is part of the White Matter group? <laughs> doing all these Nazi banner drops. He's live streams in front of us now. So these are much more radicalized individuals that have gone way, way into that realm of, of far right. So I, you know, it's it's not entirely clear to me one way or the other. I do think there might be some happy medium in there where he's uh, given information to the FBI, been an informant to the FBI, but maybe not necessarily gone full rat. And I also know, I also find it fascinating, at least, let me say this. I think FBI agents are very good at what they do. Yeah. Because I have seen a lot of these guys, um, and these are guys that I have had personal interactions with out in the field, right? Either interviewed, either filmed, whatever, what have you, where they've been taken in for questioning. And they come out of the experience, and they'll post a public video, and they will literally say things like, they weren't bringing me in because they think I did anything wrong. They're bringing me in to protect me from Antifa because Antifa's sending death threats. Oh, my God. 
Oh, my God. Yes, because the FBI, they're your friends. Yeah. Right. And they're there to help you and to protect you. Yeah. Not to set you up in any way or to get you to incriminate yourself. Right. It's wild. I mean, I literally saw uh, Benjamin Patino out in the field a couple of weeks ago and I asked him about some things. And, and he absolutely said to me that the FBI never arrested him, that he had been um, in a mental health facility, which I actually do believe. Um, this is the this is the proud boy that was threatening to shoot up a school, by the way, in case oh. who he is. So uh, you know he was he posted a video saying he was going to go full uh, full school shooting if Biden was actually you know put in office. Uh, oh my God! Definitely capable of that, to be frank. But but one of the things he also said was like the FBI hates press, hates Antifa. He, they were just protecting me, and I'm like, <laughs> wow, hey, <laughs> wow, I, I'm. I'm amazed and I'm impressed with the FBI at the same time. That's incredible. It's a skill set. set. That's right. That's exactly right. Hey, let's talk a little bit about California. I could go on on about this this subject for hours. Yeah, I'm fascinated by it. I really am. And I think it's I think it's far more important than than many in the media would have us believe. It certainly bears watching. But I want to ask you about the L.A. mayor's race. I only started focusing on this a couple of weeks ago when when the likes of, you know, uh, Ice-T and uh, P. Diddy and a couple of these people endorsed uh, Rick Caruso. Katy Perry. Katy Perry was another one. The last one where I thought, I'm not trying to diminish (laughs) Katy Perry's like political thought or whatever, but it just starts to seem like a trend. Yeah. Kim Kardashian, Elon Musk, right. Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg. I, mean, like, I think Snoop was the really? first one. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got you've got this billionaire property developer, Rick Caruso, versus Congresswoman Karen Bass. Caruso's worth $4.3 billion, according to Forbes. And he's he's developed some of the most iconic uh, shopping properties in Southern California. He only became a Democrat in January. He had been a, a Republican all of his life. And then Bass, on the other hand, grew up in a working class L.A. family. She became a social worker. She became a grassroots activist. She was considered uh, by Joe Biden to be his vice presidential running mate. Uh, But somehow Caruso's actually leading Bass among Democrats in this in the latest polls for this race. Can you explain to us the dynamics of the mayoral race and, and how this is happening? A new poll actually just came out that has Bass now ahead. I don't know which uh-huh. one to go, but they are definitely the two leaders. Having said that, uh, all of these celebrity endorsements have something in common. The first thing is that these are all very wealthy individuals. Ah, uh, yes, I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> That's the obvious one. The second point I want to make is none of them, at least the ones we're discussing here today, live in the city of Los Angeles. Oh. So you had Gwyneth Paltrow, who is indoors. She lives in Montecito. Um, Snoop Dogg, I believe, lives in Diamond Bar. The point being is these are wealthy individuals. They are friends with Rick Caruso, uh, you know, whether it's because right. shops inside his real estate development areas, whether, you know, you can go down the list, but these are the commonalities. I don't think the people of L.A. are going to get behind Rick Caruso. I do think Karen Bass is going to persevere here. Um, I think, um, and it's not just, and it's not just all billionaires getting behind Caruso. You've also had Jeffrey Katzenberg put out ads against Caruso where he's bringing up the thing you're bringing up. This guy's a lifelong Republican. He has voted to protect or has supported the NRA in the past. 
he is, you know, one of the, I think one of the worst campaign promises that Caruso is making is in regards to the LAPD. He's basically claiming that he wants to make the force 11,000 strong. Right now, we're just uh, around 9,000 to give you an idea about what a substantial increase that would be. And the way he's proposing we go about that is to short it, is to shorten the vetting times for the uh, potential officers. Nobody that follows law enforcement and law enforcement reform thinks no. it's a good idea. It's no. a terrible idea. Absolutely terrible idea, right? So I don't think – I think Caruso is not going to come out ahead here. I do think Karen Bass is uh, going to win. I did interview Karen Bass two weeks ago, by the way. Ah. I asked her, and I think this is really important. I asked her what she thought about ending uh, the filibuster, and she's 100% behind it. So, mm-hmm. so she's, she's party ways with Biden on that, and I think it's a good thing. Oh, that's very interesting. You know, it seems to me, too, that that because the the mayoral race is so important, a lot of these other California races have been overshadowed. And I recognize, of course, that this is still primary uh, season. We're not talking about general elections. But um, but tell me a little bit about what else you're watching. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about specifically, for example, was Orange County, because Orange County seems to be in this tug of war struggle with itself, where it, it can't decide if it wants to be the Republican bastion of Southern California that it, it once was, or if it's if it wants to transition to the Democrats, which is what it did, you know, two years ago. What do you what else are you watching and what's going on in Orange County. I think the interesting race in Orange County actually is the district attorney's race. So this particular race, you have Todd Spitzer, who is the sitting DA. Todd Spitzer is very, very far right. He is very much a Trump supporter. He's very much uh, from that tough on crime mentality. Uh, For example, there's a controversial case that he has put charges of attempted murder on a BLM activist who had been surrounded um, at a BLM protest in Yorba Linda, had been surrounded by a group that was just insanely out of control, included neo-Nazis and Proud Boys. This was in the height of the George Floyd uh, protest a couple of months there. Mm -hmm. And she called 911 from inside the car. I've heard the 911 call. She's begging for help. They're not listening. Uh, anyway, to make the longer story short, she she just decided to drive out of the uh, parking lot in a panic. She uh, obviously injured a few individuals doing that. So the question to me is, like, maybe she should be charged with manslaughter, but attempted murder, that is the absolute stretch. He had a million-dollar bail put up for, for her to get out of prison, which is insane. So this is just to paint a picture of how extreme this individual is. So I think he is very wildly unpopular, and not just with the left-leaning folks in Orange County. And in fact, a conservative, a conservative started a recall Spitzer campaign. Wow. So he's just wildly unpopular. There is a a guy running against him. His name is Pete Hardin. Pete is uh, very much into criminal justice reform. Uh, So I think he has a good shot of winning that election. Um, And that could really change the face of how things work. happen in Orange County going forward. I don't think people pay enough attention to DA races because they do set the tone of how how the uh, city not only looks at crime, but looks at other issues like homelessness, which is a big, obviously a big issue right now. Um, are we going to c- continue to criminalize pro- poverty or mm-hmm. the program uh, to put in place? I think another interesting election cycle that's happening is there's a group of public defenders running for superior, superior court judgeships here in Los Angeles. And if any of them win, it will be the first time we've had a public, a public defender sit on the bench. 
And I do think uh, one or two of them might get through because there has been definitely a shift change in how people view this. Oh, very interesting. And then uh, Michelle had a question, too, that she wanted to pass by you that I thought was a good one. Yeah, Tina, this is, you know, of course, there's been a lot of talk about the California election. And what has come up a couple of times is this idea that California uh, plays a role as a sort of incubator or a testing ground for policies. And so non-Californians should pay attention because what happens in California might not stay there, right? And I'm thinking of, you know, Prop 22 and the way it was defeated. I'm thinking of uh, Ronald Reagan's dismantling of the state's mental health infrastructure. Uh, and, and so I wonder if you think that's true, if people should pay attention to California, not just because of its size, right, and the, the significant government that even local um, legislators and executives have control over, but because uh, California tends to be sort of birthplace and testing ground of a lot of policies that, that take root elsewhere. Oh, I 100% agree with that. I mean, and you listed some of great examples for bad or for, for good, right? Mm-hmm. So either way, it was tested here, it definitely like leaks out to the rest of the country. California at any given moment is the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world, not just the United States. So it's it's a big state, a very popular state. Uh, you know, for example, our L.A. Sheriff's Department, I think, is the largest, you know, um, in the country. And that race mm-hmm. is a very important race because, obviously, we have a very embroiled uh, Alex Villanueva, who is our current sheriff. You know, here's a guy that ran as a Bernie Sanders supporter back, believe it or not. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and then went to the far right. Yeah. Went to the far right, yeah. He is attending all of these crazy Christian fascist uh things now and placating the far right crowd boy type. So, I mean, he's, I, I don't personally, I mean, I had, a, I had an hour long sit down interview with this guy when he was initially running for office. I think he's incredibly insincere. I don't think he ever was the person that he was claiming to be at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, during the interview, he fully recognized that the LASD had gangs inside it. And now he's saying they don't exist. I mean, he had a tweet out wow. that basically said that call, saying the LASD had gangs with hate speech, which is insane. <laughs> on so um but point being is is i do think that's the case um you know california we tend to like test new things out here part of that is the way our system is set up where we are a direct democracy we are a semi-open primary it's often the case you have two democrats that come into the final phase which is why rick caruso switched parties by the way Mm -hmm. did it because he knew he was never going to win as a republican but you'll also see a case where you have a democrat and a green party person right right um, and because we have direct democracy, anybody can put a proposition on the ballot if they want to get behind um, achieving that, getting the signatures, you know, et cetera, et cetera, the uh, things you have to do to ha- make that happen. So for better or for worse, right, you have corporations that come into the state and do that, but you also have activists that do it. So so a lot of, of what we do, I think, does affect the rest of the country. Uh, you know, we've led the, the nation, I think, another one is environmental laws, EPA standards. Mm-hmm. Somebody's going to manufacture a car and they have to do it for the state of California. Why would they set up two separate shops when we're the biggest market in the country? Uh, one quick, quick final question, and this is only from my own edification. I've got a I've got a buddy who's running in the Republican primary in California's 25th district. Uh, good guy. He's a three time Jeopardy champion, uh, an immigrant. Awesome guy. This is Katie Hill's old district. She got elected, resigned a year later, less than a year later um, in in shame, really. She shouldn't have resigned, but she did. She should have resigned. She should have fought that. She should have fought it. Yes. 
That's right. And and the district Republican, uh, the guy who represents it now is named Mike Garcia. Four other Republicans are challenging Garcia, mostly from the left, because he's a Trump guy. Can you tell us anything about what might be happening there today? Yeah, you know, 25th. The 25th is an interesting district. This is the area that includes Simi Valley among suburbs. So it is very much a traditionally right-wing district. There's a lot of law enforcement that lives out there. Uh, so I think really Katie Hill winning that election was not the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a Republican held district. I do think that unless you're a radicalized Trump individual, I do think a lot of um, old school Republicans are okay with social issues such yes. as gay marriage, et cetera, et cetera. They're just more traditionally fiscally conservative. And I do think a lot of those individuals are not okay with Donald Trump and some of the things that they're seen within the party. I don't think they like the overt racism. I think that offends them. So, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine that at this point because the extremes have been so normalized in media. But I do think, uh, so which which uh, which one is your candidate? Uh, Bert Thacker. I mean, he's got a chance, I think. I hope so. I don't think, you know, yeah, I mean, I don't think everybody's, I think we're going to see, a lot of people are saying like Trump's going to come back 2024 stronger than ever. I don't think that's I don't the either. case. What I'm seeing, what I'm seeing is there's a, a small group of people that are still married to that guy, and they are more radicalized than ever. But they're a dwindling number because plenty of people, what is it called, the silent majority, I suppose, plenty of people are offended by this extreme stuff. Yeah. They don't want anything to do with it. They do believe that our democracy is more important than anything totally else. Totally agree. Tina Desiree Berg, I hate to even end the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Tina is the host of the podcast District 34, and she's a reporter for Status Coup. Thanks for joining us. You are listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take another short break and come back. Stay tuned. To Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, taking a look now at our immigration system and just how difficult it is to navigate, even if you go through regular channels the whole way. And yes, I don't indeed. want to. I don't, you know, like setting up sort of contrast between legal and illegal immigrants because I think there, you know, some people have a lot of barriers put in their way and. Uh, Some people have more push factors than others. Um, But I think there tends to be a focus on how do you how do you normalize and legalize the status of people who might have come here without documentation? Uh, but when you start to look at things, you realize even if you come here with work permits and everything else, it's, it's such a creaky old system that your children can get stuck in it. And so uh, we are joined to take a look at a Wall Street Journal story that highlights this phenomenon. We're joined by Mark Shmueli. He's a local immigration attorney. He's the immediate past chair of the Federal Bar Association's immigration law section. And he's also been working through Sanctuary DMV to provide on-call legal advice and welcoming and orienting immigrants arriving by bus in D.C. Mark, thanks for joining us. So this Wall Street Journal story, it talks about the children of people who come to the United States through regular channels with work permits who apply for green cards and then still wait for years, for more than a decade. And this story 
begins with the case of an Indian family. The mother moved to California for a job with Microsoft 18 years ago when her daughter, Althuya Rajkumar, was five. Uh, Rajkumar is now 23, and though her family's green cards were approved last year after a nine-year wait, she had by then aged out of eligibility because once you turn 21, actually, I'm not sure if it's once you turn 21 or upon exiting the year of age 21, right? But at, at 21, you don't have a path to stay in the U.S., in the country you were raised in, legally anymore. So now... She can either stay in the U.S. illegally or she can move to India, a country that has not been her home for nearly two decades. So the story estimates that 200,000 people in the U.S. are in this position, that 10,000 young people a year uh, face this problem. And ironically, these young people have fewer protections than DACA recipients who are at least recognized and have the opportunity to apply for legal permission to stay. And so I wonder, Mark, if you can just talk to us about how we've ended up in this situation, especially, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but especially as it seems like nobody wants this. Oh, I think the art, the other article talks about Mark Krikorian and mm. the there are there are ideologues that that want this, but uh, and and I, and I know that um, you know certainly corporate America doesn't right. want this. Certainly, um, and and you could say in a good way, in the sense of these are these are workers who who are um, you know who've gone to college mm -hmm. here. They've been here on temporary, uh, usually on maybe an H-1B or uh, a temporary uh, 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 visa tied to the employer, mm -hmm. um, and then uh, or, or non-immigrant visa, and then they've they've applied for the green card, and 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 because um, um, there there's a there's a country allotment for each country, as you know, equally with certain countries, it's no shock that um, India is going to have a, a, a more significant background than anywhere else, you know, in China, not far behind because the number of, um, of, of, of workers in, in the populations and the number of workers that are here. And, and, um, and the thing that's really sad is that the um, administration, this administration is fighting um, these lawsuits. Yeah, so that's oh, bonkers boy. to me. Yeah, let me talk about this a little bit more because, right, I say it, it, nobody likes this, but what I mean is uh, you have some of the biggest and most powerful companies in the U.S. lobbying for this policy to be changed, right? I'm talking about Amazon, uh, Google, a whole bunch of tech companies. They all sent an open letter to the Biden administration today uh, calling for some kind of reform to this policy. And I suspect this is because they employ a lot of these workers who are coming from India and China. But there are also both Democrat and Republican sponsored bills to address this issue. Uh, neither has been able to move anywhere in Congress. And so, uh, yeah, I, I wonder... I wonder where you lay the blame for this. I would be interested in hearing more about the ideologues who oppose any changes to immigration policy that might result in slightly more immigrants in the United States. But I also wonder if just immigration as a topic has become so toxic that administrations don't even want to take action on changes that would be relatively popular. You know, uh, I'm going to. I take issue with the latter part of that—that mm -hmm. that it's become a topic. I think it, the the historic roots are uh, there, mm -hmm. and that it, it it has always been a topic. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that the um, 
uh, it, not a topic, but it, you, because when you have to explain it, it's, you know, it, within the current framework, it's a lot easier to find, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's rife with inconsistencies on any level and rife with injustice and different treatment mm-hmm. of um, all of the time. And so um, if you, you can focus on that in both, you know, progressives and people that are, that, that are, uh, that want really solid immigration reform, because they talk about immigration reform, mm-hmm. there's immigration reform, but then there's progressive immigration reform. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that nothing gets done is that, you know, progressive immigration reform is usually, you know, shunted by the democratic establishment and, rabid uh, anti-immigrant stuff is usually blunted by corporate America. Mm-hmm. And so you get something in the middle and then each side fights and they kind of like take enough on the, on their side that there's not, it, it, there's not a real middle, even though they've tried. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I view it. And, and, and there's no narrative. There's no narrative other than these few things here and there. And it's not viewed as something that is symptomatic. And that means um, by, the Biden administration, um, who, you know, mostly says the right things. Certainly, um, people who want progressive immigration reform hung their hats on them. Mm-hmm. Um, they brought progressive people into the administration, some of whom have left, um, and they're fighting this system. But uh, there's no narrative. There is, there's no narrative um, coming from them as to, you know, a comprehensive narrative. Mm-hmm. So if if the Biden administration were to support, uh, you know, these families, then people would rightly say, well, wait a minute, you know, you're siding with the corporations and these families. But what about, um, you know, (laughs) other places where you're not fighting, where you're 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 wanting, you know, um, a a slower pace of of any, uh, you know, immigration reform for for workers that. Um, I mean, the whole idea of like that skilled workers are more valuable than than quote unskilled workers mm-hmm. itself extremely problematic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, New Orleans. The economy, frankly, would grind to a halt without so-called unskilled workers. Oh, one of my favorite stories of the pandemic is when uh, it was a bunch of seasonal farm workers. Uh, seasonal farm workers who were going to pick the uh, asparagus crop, mm-hmm. I think in Alberta, I forget, it was in Canada, um, of a major farm, like a major asparagus producer. There was a COVID outbreak. Uh, the company, to to their credit, uh, put the workers up in hotels, isolated isolated them, paid for their stay. So they were taken care of, but there was no one to harvest this asparagus. And the community came together and they're like, we can do it. We can harvest the asparagus together. Absolutely failed because it's not unskilled work. No, it's right? actually quite skilled. It's quite, yeah, it's quite skilled and it's quite demanding and quite difficult. And you can't just wander <laughs> in and do it. And so the crop was lost despite the you know efforts of these people. And so to me, it seems like a, a good illustration of like exactly. Exactly, exactly what unskilled labor is and the impact that it has. Yeah. Well, Mark, so what, you know, what is the problem here? Like, is this just, do we need to reconsider our quota system, right? Do, do processes simply need to happen faster, right? Like the processes on paper are fine. It's the, it's their speed. What, what is going on that is preventing this really sort of common sense uh, issue from, from being addressed? Well, I, I mean, what needs to be what hangs over all of this is the 1996 immigration mm-hmm. law. That, in it, that is the last quote comprehensive immigration reform, and it is the one where which made it, um, which which put into place a lot of things which are just bad, 
numerous things that are just bad and used all the time, and then hidden things that were bad that nobody mm-hmm. used the last administration. Like, I mean, people mm-hmm. were shocked that the last administration was, uh, you know, it, it increasing their prosecutions for um, un- people crossing the border unauthorized a first time. That had never really been prosecuted. It's a mm-hmm. misdemeanor. But they were prosecuting on it. And you know what? It was there. Mm-hmm. And the second time is certainly, you know, after you've been removed, um, you know, they were done not as much with some with some discretion, but there was no reason to have discretion. And the same concept of mandatory detention um, that is in the law and what the, uh, you know, Obama administration did was give the ankle bracelets. It gave. Well, now you see all the electronic monitoring, whereas the Trump administration just locked them all up. Mm-hmm. And you know the law says shall be for all of you know re, shall be detained for all these different things. And so the the that that ninety six law was signed by everybody. It passed ninety seven to three, mm-hmm. and you had your you know. Clinton, Ted Kennedy saying, oh, well, you know, we can, we're going to moderate it and we're not going to enforce these. And then you also had some of the, you know, really, uh, you know, racist anti-immigrants signing on to it also uh, saying, okay, this is where we're going to go with it. And, you know, once there wasn't much that Trump did that was extra legal. Right. I I think that is also a great lesson of his presidency that, you know, he was just sort of putting things into practice that other people they'd sort of conveniently ignored, but had there at their disposal in case you should ever want to trigger them. Um, Mark, I want to ask also the last time we spoke to you, we talked about uh, the buses of immigrants that Texas was sending to Washington, D.C. And I wanted to get an update as to, you know, whether Texas is still engaged in that project or uh, whether they found it didn't get them the uh, the stunt value that they had expected. And I also wanted to ask, you know, what what have you heard from some of the people who took the opportunity for a free ride across the country? How has their um, orientation, how is their settling in the U.S. been? Sure. Well, first of all, it's not it, it, it's it's not only Texas is still doing it, but they have a, a dance partner in mm-hmm. Arizona. Um, and so uh, they uh, have, you know, they they're they're coming at a rate. I mean, it's really hard to say, you know, because we see like uh, the weekends generally have not. It's funny weekends haven't been that busy mm-hmm. compared in in the last few months. And the weekend was a little bit less, but there were some buses last week. Um, and the people that are here, uh, they are, you know. There is a, there there is an issue as they uh, start to need um, you know they're going to be before the immigration courts here so they're going to need legal representation and all of these these uh, the there's it's still done in a sort of ad hoc way and 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 they're still feeling their way around and there's some struggles with um, you know the city uh, in D.C. and and funding and and sources of funding. Um, it's you know the community. It's it's still out there. People are working really hard, and there's still that need uh, that's there. So no, it's not it's not decreasing at all. And I wouldn't expect. Is it that to. a little bit surprising, considering that uh, for quite a few people, it was you know the the trip was welcome. They they had intended to end up on the East Coast, and you know maybe had arrived in the U.S. having spent more money than they intended to, and being unsure of where to go. I mean, is it 
do you look at this in any way as sort of a kindness that these states are are doing to for for some of these immigrants? Because the last time we spoke to you, of course, it's not mandatory. It's not like people are being forced onto these buses, and it's not necessary. It's not getting very much attention that I can see in the media anymore. So it's not necessarily a sort of uh, you know that the, they've earned themselves some kind of uh, headlines about like how immigrants are running amok in Washington D.C. or something. How should we view this process now? I, how should we view it? I mean, I, I, I mean, clearly it was a stunt. Clearly it was done for their own reasons and to draw the mm-hmm. attention. And people can, even through all of the other news and all, people can still, you know, w- one thing about them is that they have a consistent narrative that never mm-hmm. budges. And, you know, so, you know, and, and just when you think, uh, you've got a popularity uh, against, then all of a sudden they have they have their 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 um, you know uh, uh, their narrative, and we know you know we know Governor Abbott is running for for right. reelection, um, and we know immigration is going to be there is a difference. There's a very big difference between him and 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 Beto O'Rourke, and Beto O'Rourke is the kind of a Democrat that runs on immigrants are good, they're part of our community, mm-hmm. cut it out, like unequivocal equivocal on that and that you you got to give him for that and always has been and so this is something that's going to be out there um and you know will it play for i mean i think it'll probably play with his constituency and i think the national media uh you they've yeah there's nothing for them to report on it because it would require them to report on the larger Mm -hmm. issue you know and the larger issue is that it's 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 a mess because we're still living under the regime of a 1996 law that they can tinker with but they can't they they haven't changed. And so I want to ask what what would you like to see from the Biden administration or what would you like to see the administration at least attempt and then also do you have any expectation that we will see anything to do with immigration before the midterms? Well, I think that I think we've seen a couple of pos- some positive things the administration mm-hmm. has done. Uh, with the use of temporary protected status for for countries in Africa where there's been, you know, coups and violence and and Sudan, South Sudan, they've allowed Sudanese students to work. They recognize that. Um, They recognize those those countries are too dangerous for people to go back to, Cameroon also. Um, And they should do that with Central America. There's no question, question that 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 would be a huge, huge It would be a game changer in a lot of ways if they if they uh, reinstituted temporary protected status, you know, and they gave it for Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. Yeah, that would be an incredible change. I I don't know if I have high expectations, but that would be really great. Uh, That was Mark Schmueli. He was a local immigration attorney and immediate past chair of the Federal Bar Association. Mark, uh, I really appreciate you joining us. And also, do you want to tell our listeners where they can go to find out more about Sanctuary DMV? Um, the, well, let me, uh, can, can I post it? Sure. You guys, well, I'll, I'll send it over and you can um, post it. It's the same link that they had. Before. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks much. Well, I really appreciate it. We are going to take a quick break here on political misfits and come back with the last few headlines to tell you about. We're live in DC. We're on radio Sputnik. We'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. 
I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we have, I think I am counting two last stories to get to. One that I cannot believe didn't come up in all our discussions about primaries. How I missed this. How did we miss uh, last month the Republican who won his local primary from jail? What's he in jail for? Allegedly (laughs) murdering his wife. He bashed her in the head with a flower pot. Yes. Now, did he he did he admit to that? He admitted no. to hitting her over the head. Yeah. They, he he lied to investigators after mm-hmm. his wife went missing. Then he said he'd hit her over the head with a flower pot and dumped her body in a creek. Um, so I don't I guess that means he has confessed to murder. I don't know if he is recanting and saying that that wasn't true. Um, but yes, this is Andrew. We Yeah. And the crazy thing is, and this is a minor position. It's like a, a, a county supervisor position or whatever. <laughs> But still, and there are three open positions, and he's one of only three candidates. So the man's going to win. Yeah. Well, you could just <laughs> run. Listen, run your dog, folks, or or something. Run your run a plant. Have right. a fern in one seat, and then two other, just two people world? do the jobs of three people for a little while. Uh, yeah. Uh, interesting. Uh, under our system, so his. Uh, this is the co-director of the bipartisan Indiana Election Division, uh, told the local Kokomo Tribune that Will Hoyt's arrest doesn't preclude him from appearing on the ballot in November. Under our system, you are innocent until you are proven guilty. If a person's convicted of a felony, then they're no longer longer eligible to be a candidate and ineligible to hold office. So, again, a little confused by his apparent confession. Yeah. I mean, I know confess a confession is not the same as a conviction, right? I'm not right, confused right, about right. that. But yep. still, to continue to be like, oh, no, keep him on the ballot until he's convicted, even though he said he's done it, is interesting to me. Anyway, he's running for a spot <laughs> on the Clinton Township School Board. This is in Boone <laughs> County, Indiana. Good luck. Good luck, Boone County. Maybe uh, maybe you can have a write-in campaign or something after there, that. There's got to be one person in Boone County, one person who would be willing to stand as a write-in. I guess, but what if you lost? Oh, how humiliating <laughs> would that exactly. be? Exactly, that's that's a Hillary Clinton experience. Really. Oh boy! Uh, the other story that that caught my eye is is a little bit more uh, media media whispers. This comes from Axios that tells us CNN evaluating partisan talent, which is sort of a vague headline, right? You have to read down. I'll to go, say, what is CNN doing? Oh, it turns out. So this is this is part of CNN's uh, attempted rebranding, re restructuring under its new boss, Chris Licht. Yes. I don't know. Honestly, do not know how much of this is for show and how much of this is genuine. But we are to believe, according to Axios's sources, that the new boss is evaluating whether personalities and programming that grew polarizing during the Trump era can adapt to the network's new priority to be less partisan. And this means Good. that people who are who are judged to not be able to adapt to that could be fired. These are what Axios's sources say. Apparently, um, the, what is interesting for me is uh, some of the uh, the challenges. You know, the, what what Licht will want to see demonstrated. Because here is how it's described here: for on-air talent, that includes engaging in respectful interviews that don't feel like PR stunts. Mm-hmm. I. 
Good yeah. luck. Good luck with that. Yeah. Also, you know what they're going to have to do? Was seriously. Was too respectful? Wasn't that sort of that the was problem? part of the problem? It, yeah. You know, Wolf Blitzer used to used to sort of push the political team as the best political analysis in, in the industry or in in media or mm-hmm. whatever it was, and it really was. You know, John King is absolutely brilliant mm. and can get down into the weeds of of politics and individual districts or towns or states i i could listen to that guy all day long um the republican consultants are just as good as the democratic consultants it's the hosts that are terrible mm-hmm. on cnn mm-hmm. it's the hosts that are polarizing Mm-hmm. The big talent, the big money talent on CNN is where the problem is. Yeah. It's not on the the consultant that they bring in to, you know, just at, at election time to talk about this race or that race. But I mean, look at the lawsuits they're facing uh, or the lawsuit yes. they're facing and just trying yes. to get rid of Chris Cuomo. What exactly happens if you right. trying to get rid of uh, Jake Tapper, whose name does not appear in this story? Uh, Jim Acosta shows up here. Mm-hmm. Brian Stelter shows up here. Brian Stelter's um, dreadful. I watched him again this Brian weekend. Stelter's really... He's, he embarrasses himself and he doesn't even realize it. Yeah, he's terrible. He's particularly terrible. bad. Here's a good thing. You know what? I found a line in this story that I am excited about. Uh, Last week, employees were told in a memo that the network had added a breaking news guideline to its style book to address overuse of the breaking news banner. They have a show called Breaking News. This is news that actually affects my life because every time you look at CNN, something is breaking news and it's like breaking news. Yeah, Yeah, breaking news. Rain. Yeah. It's wet, folks. Yes. Yeah. So, hey, I hate that. great job. If I, if I learn nothing else about Chris Licht in my entire life, Amen. I will say thank you for doing that. Amen. Appreciate it. Yeah. So we'll see. For those of you who can stand to watch CNN, you can let me know if it becomes less alarmist and more uh, focused on genuine analysis. I'm not sure that I can be convinced to dip my foot back in there. <laughs> yeah. That's why I watch Al Jazeera and BBC, and I used to watch RT. Yeah. And then when they cut it off of cable, I started watching it on Pluto. That's the only reason I even downloaded Pluto mm-hmm. was because Lee Camp told me, oh, hey, if you want to watch us now, it's on Pluto. Mm-hmm. Well, now you can't see it anywhere. Also, John, we got a little update on this story about Wells Fargo. Did we talk about this on the show where it was revealed that Wells Fargo had been doing fake interviews yes. to sort of meet diversity requirements? So it have a yeah. candidate in mind, but engage Awful. in absolutely meaningless interviews of the kinds of people it needed to, which was yeah. mostly people of color and women. They used to do that at the CIA and they got called. Absolutely wasting their time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, now it is temporarily suspending the policy that led some managers to conduct those sham interviews uh they are going to you know look look into it figure out what could possibly have gone wrong oh could it be sort of cronyism nepotism all this sort of insiderism and just good old-fashioned misogyny and racism could that be part of it who knows so the cia was doing that too john yeah yeah they would advertise for a job and They've, they've already got somebody. They're just yeah. pretending to go through the motions. Don't waste our time, folks. Awful. That's what we'll end it here on. Don't waste our time. We're not going to waste your time. We would never do that. We're going to get out of here right now. Uh, I want to say thanks to our guests, our engineers and producers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> 